just among us, and sometimes they win. Even the devil was an angel once. The world has its own rules, and these rules are not human. Some of us seek answers to the origin and existence of cryptids and the unexplained. Join us as we venture beyond the known and accepted boundaries. Welcome to our nightmare. I think you're going to like it. Folks, good evening and welcome to another episode of Fans of Monsters Radio, where we explore the strange and the unexplained. I'm your host, Lon Strickler, and thanks for joining us. Now, if you enjoy the content, then please subscribe, like, and share our presentations. And, and please feel free to comment. Uh, we like to get an idea of what your thoughts are on the, uh, the show, the guests, and everything. Um, Super Chat is active during the show. So please show your support of Fams of Monsters Radio by clicking the dollar icon under the chat. If you um, you can also support the channel by using the Buy Me a Coffee link. Uh, your consideration is very much needed and appreciated. So tonight, prior to pursuing his dream of becoming a full-time author and musician in 2015, Joshua Cutchin served as public affairs director of the University of Georgia, Hugh Hodgins. School of Music for three years. During his tenure at UGA, Joshua authored over 100 articles, press releases, and blog posts. Joshua has appeared on countless paranormal programs discussing his work, including Coast to Coast, Mysterious Universe, uh, Banal America, Expand Perspectives, and The Grillian Report. He has also been featured in the hit uh, History Channel television show, Ancient Aliens, and is a recurring roundtable guest on the Where Did the Road Go podcast. He is the author of seven critically acclaimed books, A Trojan Feast, The Food and Drink Offerings of the Aliens, Fairies and Sasquatch, The Brimstone Deceit, an in-depth examination of supernatural sense, otherworldly odors, and monstrous miasmas, Thieves in the Night, a brief history of supernatural child abductions, and Where the Footprints End, High Strangers and the Bigfoot Phenomena, Volumes 1 and 2. That was with Timothy Renner. And in 2022, he released his two-part masterwork, Ecology of Souls, A New Mythology of Death in the Paranormal, which we will be talking about this evening. Uh, in 2023, you will see the release of Fairy Films We Folk on the Big Screen, a collection of essays for which he is the editor and the contributor. He also appears alongside co-author Timothy Renner in the 2023 documentary, I Believe in Bigfoot. And tonight, uh, Bernadette McDaniel, who is an investigator and researcher with Fams Monsters 14 Research, will be joining us as a co-host, and she will soon be premiering her own show, A Paranormal Life. So, Joshua, thanks for coming on tonight. It's so good to always catch up with you, Lon. Uh, you know, we should do it more often than just when a new book comes out. Yeah, know? I, I know. I agree with you. Well, uh, it, it's been a while. It has been a while. And, you know, um, I don't always meet someone as open to new ideas as yourself. So it's always well, a pleasure to, to catch up and, and bounce, bounce ideas off of each other. So. <laughs> well, I, I tell you, death in the paranormal. I mean, what else can you say about that? I mean, you know, it kind of goes hand in hand. 
I haven't read all of your book. I've read parts of it. It's it's really interesting. It's a lot of different stuff in there. I didn't even imagine would be put into a book. But uh, tell us a bit about it and how you got involved in doing this. Well, like a lot of us, uh, the last couple of years have been hard, and I've had some personal stuff that's uh, kind of fed into that. And I came out the other side of that experience, and I I said, now's the time to do this, because I've been playing with this idea in the back of my head, just sort of taking note of things as I, as I look through research in my other books. And there were two things that always really stuck with me that I just didn't know what to do with. And the first one is that... Uh, in the wake of publishing Communion, uh, Whitley Strieber uh, was just inundated with correspondence from different experiencers who were seeking to, you know, let him know that they had also had some other odd things happening in their lives. And uh, I get the impression that Anne, his wife, was sort of acting almost like a personal assistant and helping him manage all this massive amount of correspondence. Correspondence that it's, is now housed at the uh, Fondren Library at Rice University. They just had a big ceremony uh, announcing those archives. But uh, he has made it a point in several of his books to, uh, to take note of an observation that Anne had. And he says he remembers going into the study and there being a list of observations that she had made. And the one that he keeps on to bringing up in his books is she wrote down, this has something to do with what we call death, referring to the UFO contact experience, which is very much not what you would expect from something like the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Um, you know, what, what do little green scientists from another planet have to do with the human dead? So there was that data point and, you know, ever, ever since I heard that, I've sort of been looking for these other data points as they go along and uh, sort of to, to confirm if that's really a suspicion that's worth uh, investigating. And sure enough, if you look for it, you can find people who have these experiences and see dead loved ones or, you know, dead acquaintances aboard craft. Um, and it seemed to me like one of the biggest mysteries <laughs> that there was, right? And, and death is, you know, just a... a gigantic mystery to begin with mm -hmm. so i thought that i could get in and out of this with one book i had no desire to split it into two it's split into two now this is a pure function of uh of its size uh i i, I put the three books together and it's like that because <laughs> because it's it's just that big and i knew nobody would want to buy something that was that was that big I say three books because it has 4,000 endnotes. So all the references and the appendices listing different cases are just in that third book. But um, once I started sort of picking apart at this, it, it became really apparent that, well, you can't talk about this without talking about near-death experiences. And near-death experiences uh, seem to have something to do with, uh, with a lot of these altered states of consciousness. I mean, we're looking at the work of like Kenneth Ring and Eddie Bullard, who have really shown this sort of... Uh, a relationship between the alien abduction experience and shamanic initiation and altered states of consciousness and near-death experiences. So it just sort of just it kept on blossoming and kind of honestly getting out of control to the extent that I was like, well, if I'm going to write this book, there are certain things about the way that we used to think about the human soul and about that transition of death that really need to be provided as an informative uh, background. So that's what volume one ended up being. Is sort of like talking about these ancient ideas, talking about how maybe even something like, you know, ancient monuments, uh, you know, stone circles and, and fairy forts and stuff like that fit into this. And, uh, you know, there's also the fairy connection, which anybody who's familiar with my work will know that I've been long fascinated with. And I think 
that this death connection is something that kind of haunts the background of Jacques Vallée's 1969 Passport to Magonia, you know, a foundational text for what I do. But Vallée did a great job of saying it looks like this modern UFO phenomenon seems to be echoing a lot of aspects of older mythology, including especially, rather, the, the fairy faith. And there's another sort of implication that lies beyond, behind that, which is the fact that a lot of these cultures associated the fairies with the human dead. So if you apply the transitive property, if, if fairies were closely associated with sometimes literally being the human dead, then what does that say about aliens so closely resembling uh, these fairy encounters from yesteryear? So as you can see, like it just snowballs until you're like, well, it kind of became this sort of snapshot of the way that I kind of think about the paranormal now and I can't I would like to escape it at some point but right now for me being in the midst of it it's it's really compelling to myself so uh, I decided to share that with everyone and <laughs> and and uh, you know it, it as you mentioned like no grudges about you not finishing it because it is a pretty darn big book and I yeah. consider it one book and it's it's you know, I think it's 300 and 400 pages respectively to wade yeah. through it, it, it's a lot. It really is. I, you know, and it's funny and uh, in, in interesting because every time I get involved with a case, and it doesn't matter what kind of case it is, uh, cryptid, UFO, you know, anything like that, there's always a death and the paranormal or spirit or energy association to some degree with it. Um. Yeah, why is death so much so prevalent in the paranormal? I mean, that's that's a great that's a great question, and you know, I think that part of it is, has to do with the fact that it death is the greatest mystery of all. You know, right. um, so it kind of I think to be completely honest, I think that it kind of becomes a catch-all for a lot of this folk. Um, but at the same time, uh, if you look through a lot of these mythologies, there's there's not a lot of distinction between really what we would call nowadays other dimensions and what they would once have called other worlds and the afterlife. Like a lot, these are really sort of um, nebulous distinctions. If we won't even try to draw distinctions between them, you know, I mean, fairyland is an excellent example. You've got these stories of fairyland as being sort of this place that isn't necessarily the afterlife, but it sometimes is a place where the dead congregate or the dead are seen. You know, there, there are countless stories where people, uh, enter fairyland either from you know walking into a fairy circle or you know perhaps again descending into one of those uh, iron age iron age ring forts that I mentioned that later became fairy forts and uh, and seeing people in their community who had just died and you know invariably in these legends these are the people who say don't eat or drink anything <laughs> because you know you'll get trapped here and you know in some ways i guess that was probably the first time that i came upon this when i was writing a trojan feast and i'm reading about you know mm -hmm. fairies which are supposed to be these lovely little elemental sprites that are running through the forest and helping things grow and there's all this death symbolism associated with it um so yeah i think that's probably part of it is that just we don't we once lacked the distinction between these other realms and death in a way that we that we've set up today you know today it's like well you die and you go to heaven where you go to hell and you know there must be other dimensions that are something completely different but it's not as clear in those older texts for sure 
Yeah, and it's not clear now either. I mean, it's like <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I think you, you know. It seems like my interpretation of of death in uh, the afterlife and other worlds just is just evolving all the time. It, it's never it's never anything set in stone. I think that's healthy, though. I mean, you know, I I say at some point in book two that, like, I'm kind of terrified by this thing that I've just written because I find it so appealing. And, and in my opinion, you know, a, a a mind that's made up is a calcified mind. You know, it's brittle and it breaks and it, it's you get rigid and you get sort of married to these ideas. Um, so the, the fact that, you know, your, your ideas are constantly evolving is, I think, a, a really admirable trait. Um, you know, at the same time, I kind of feel like a lot of modern paranormalists have really tried to reinvent the wheel. You know, we have this underpinning of trying to approach this as a science. And that's not to say that science can't be applied to some of the stuff. In fact, science should be applied to some of the stuff. But a lot of these terms that you will see are just new sort of sciencey reworkings of these ideas that we've just had all along. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I, I made sure not to do in this book is I didn't try to, you know, I didn't try to rework what the afterlife is or what death is, or where it ghosts are, simply because the book's big enough as it is. Um, but also because, you know, it's just I, I think that there's something kind of elegant with how simply we once interface with those ideas. I'm definitely open to the idea that ghosts are time slips or any number of other things and you know number of alternate theories but for 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 this purpose it was just like let's just say that they're the souls of the dead and, and move on from there right you know while writing this and i know that you you, you were almost two years in writing this um what surprises came up i mean was there anything that really surprised you um i mean that you kind of shook your thoughts pre from previous uh you know interpretations so i mean absolutely the thing something that i've been really resistant towards for a while my good friend sarah Askath has brought this up mm -hmm. ever since i've known him right and uh and Soraya has often talked about these phenomena being self-generated now i want to be really clear Soraya doesn't mean that this is an hallucination or that it's not real or objectively real in some way but 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 that somehow we are self-generating these phenomena and I was always really hesitant to that because, you know, at the end of the day, like, I, I want uh, Bigfoot to be a big monkey in a way, you know, at, at the end of the day, I want aliens, <laughs> UFOs rather, to be extraterrestrials in a way. Um, so the idea that, like, it's somehow a completely human thing uh, was something that I was always really resistant to. But once I started looking at one of the ideas that really ended up permeating this book was this idea of uh, polypsychism. And this is why I think, you know, a new mythology of death and the paranormal is a little bit misleading because the real heart of the matter is that it's ecology of souls. And it's that idea of, you know, reincarnation gets brought up and uh, the afterlife, of course, but also things like polypsychism, which is such an elegant idea that I think it could solve some of the heartache that we have nowadays. Um, polypsychism is an idea that a lot of uh, indigenous cultures and a lot of ancient cultures uh, it really embraced. Uh, you see this especially in you know ancient Egypt, where they suggested that we had as many as nine souls, I think, or mm -hmm. you know in in Norse folklore the idea that you have multiple souls and that there are other things that are within you that might even have their own degree of autonomy. 
and be able to go out and do their things. I mean, it, arguably, that's where a lot of this werewolf sort of folklore comes from, is this idea that you have a separable soul that can go out and do its own thing. And once you start looking at some of these phenomena through that lens, it's kind of hard to unsee it. You know, I mean, these these different experiences are often so tailored to the witnesses um, when they interact with entities that uh, that can communicate, you'll find that they know the experiencer <laughs> sometimes better than they know themselves. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that there's something within you that can sort of go about on its own and maybe even interact with you from a third person standpoint is something that I really didn't want to engage with, but I ended up finding really compelling. And, you know, that's sort of been a guiding ethos of what I've tried to do. There are two things that I think that I have really, two things that I think have really guided a lot of my work. The first one is to take some little observation that someone has made in passing and sort of like expand upon it. So like that was what brimstone deceit was, right? The brimstone deceit was all about looking at people saying, oh, there's a smell of sulfur and then just moving on. I'm like, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. <laughs> what does that mean? You know, let's, let's unpack what these smells mean in these cases. But the other thing that's really guided me is to kind of lean into stuff that I'm uncomfortable with, quite frankly. Right. And uh, the idea of this phenomenon, these phenomena, but, you know, thinking about the UFO phenomenon specifically, being self-generated is something that I don't like. But, you know, if I'm going to be intellectually honest, I think it's something to pursue. I mean, a similar thing, like, I didn't know what to do with these stories of reincarnation and alien abductions or pre-birth memories. I mean, that kind of makes me pull back a little bit like it's it's like as someone who is who is really kind to the woo thinking like it's almost like a bridge too far for me but at the same time these stories aren't going away and you hear them a lot yeah, so you if do. you're gonna be so if, you know i think it anybody who has a problem with something like that like take a closer look at it and see what maybe you can learn and see if maybe there's some way you can sort of fit it into your existing worldview in some sort of way so that was that ended up being a big part of this too for me or a big surprise i guess we got a question from Jose Sanchez, which I think is pretty good. Um, could purgatory actually be here on Earth where spirits tend to roam today? Short answer is yes. Um, and in fact, in some uh, in some cultures in some ancient times, uh, it was literally thought of as that. You know, you have the famous St. Patrick's Purgatory in Ireland, which was sometimes conceptualized as like a physical cave. But um, there, I have a chapter that deals with... Uh, it's kind of like my ley line chapter, but it ends up dealing with these ideas of, you know, ley lines, that old UFO, ufological idea of orthotony, the idea that UFOs travel in straight lines, um, but also the wild hunt. And if anybody's familiar with the wild hunt, it was, you know, oftentimes considered uh, a, a, a pagan observation. Um mm -hmm. There's some dispute as to whether or not it was because everything gets mixed up with Christianity. But once the yeah. Christians got once the Christians got their hands on it, it can't kind of became a mobile purgatory. And if anyone's unfamiliar with this, it's the idea that some sort of leader, uh, it could be Hearn the Hunter, it could be Odin, it could be King Arthur, some sort of leader would 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 process across the landscape at relatively predictable times of year and would oftentimes, you know endanger anyone who was caught in its path but uh in that army especially if the leader was sort of a more nefarious character or a pagan character it would be the unrepentant dead um who signed who kind of evolved into demons over time but the unrepentant dead who would be featured in that uh, in that procession so yeah the, the idea that purgatory somehow exists here on earth is is definitely resonant with that to say nothing of you know 
even older Gnostic ideas that this planet's a prison, which God knows it feels like it nowadays. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that because it just yeah. really does. Burn it you got anything? I just, I think it's interesting how your take is on the fairies because I'm, I'm very big into like fairies, you know, myself. But I just, I think um, if I read correctly, you even had a part where, you know, a transitioning into a fairy, if I'm not mistaken, I read. Yeah. So this is something that doesn't really sit well with uh, a lot of love and light people. And I say that with all the love in my heart. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I I just spoke at a conference in August that was that was very much love and light and they're wonderful people. Um, but something that doesn't sit well with a lot of people are the idea that fairies weren't always conceptualized in this sort of nature spirit sort of way. Um, we largely have theosophy to blame for that. We have theosophy to blame for a lot of things, but uh, but theosophy was also to blame for that. The uh, 19th century <laughs> movement. Uh, spearheaded by Helena Blavatsky. Prior to Theosophy, a lot of cultures viewed fairies as being very closely tied to the dead, almost as a way of sort of reconciling some of these anomalies that we see nowadays. They would say, oh, it's fairies which are the dead. And this is something that always puzzled me, but uh, there is the work of former Sorbonne historian of medieval uh, history, I guess you would be a historian of history, wouldn't you? Um, Claude Lecouteau. And if anybody has not read Claude Lecouteau's books, they are my favorite UFO books, and they have nothing to do with UFOs. Mm. Because you read these books, and he's talking about, you know, spirits of the land and household spirits and things like the Wild Hunt. And, you know, it just, you see all these little hallmarks of the UFO phenomenon cropping up in the, these stories. And, you know, it's interesting because you read Lecouteau's work, and you can kind of tell that he he has some sort of belief in these things. And you know, maybe that's why he's a former Sorbonne historian, but, uh, but Lecouteau um, put forth, he explained it really well in one of his books, the sort of mechanism by which people could basically die and become fairies. And the way that he explained it, and you find this in, in the work of some other ethnographers who are interested in these subjects, but someone who was uh, a revered individual, like a chief or a shaman or a great warrior, would be buried at a place. And of course, naturally their gravesite would be revered, but over time, over successive generations, their memory would either be forgotten or it would sort of evolve into being genus loci, a spirit of the land. And they would sort of be revered in that area. And that might become a fairy glen or, or something like that. Um, and you do find this uh, in, this is not merely a theory because it, it does appear in really um, tangible ways. Buryat shamans sometimes, I believe it's Buryat shamans would be, um, buried in a location for a period, then they would be, their coffins would be exhumed and they'd be buried at a new location where they would sort of transfer into being the guardian spirit of that place. You find similar ideas in that are readily, readily uh, observable in like Polynesia and whatnot. So uh, it, it does seem like that might be something that's kind of going on, but at the same time, you know, uh, my, my, my friend and colleague, Morgan Daimler, who is somebody who talks on fairies and I just take it to the bank. She, as she likes to say, uh, you know, uh, fairies are the dead, except when they're not. And they're, and they're, they're elemental spirits, except when they're not. So I think that what we end up seeing is that a lot of these categories, once you make that transition become really, um, blurred, you know, and, and my working model that I have in my head is that we just sort of all go into this sort of animist soup on the other side. And, uh, you know, from that spring, all sorts of terrifying and wonderful things. And if you look at that, it sort of makes 
uh, it sort of makes some of the inconsistencies in reincarnation a little bit more understandable. You know, I was just watching a, a, a comedy special by a comedian who was joking about people who believe in past lives and how, you know, some, three different people show up at a party and all think that they were once Napoleon Bonaparte or all think that they're once Cleopatra. But I kind of wonder if little bits and pieces of of other people in past lives don't get put into all of us. Like, oh, again, like, like the idea of rivers going to a sea and then, you know, coming back out of it again. So that was a long meandering answer for your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's perfect. And also how, can you explain how like the changelings come about, how you can be, you know, reborn as a changeling? Well, I found that interesting. Yeah. So that, no, that, that, that's a great question. Um, so if anybody is wondering, changelings were substitutions for human children. Um, you find them predominantly in fairy folklore, but sometimes you can find it depending on the, 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 civilization that you're looking at you can find it ascribed to wild men and spirits in general and demons and even lake monsters in some north american traditions um but the idea was that something would come and would replace your child with one of their own in the fairy folklore which is where you hear about changelings most often this is either a sickly elderly fairy or a fairy infant or uh something that was disguised to look like a fairy like an inanimate object that's disguised to look like a fairy or sorry, disguised to look like a child. Um, the reasons behind this uh, vary. Uh, lots of times it would be the idea that the fairy babies needed mortal milk to consume because fairy food was always a sham. But what I find really interesting is the fact that, horrifically, um, lots of human children were supposedly rescued from fairyland, and I use that term very broadly, by basically abusing them. Uh, in some pretty horrific ways. We're talking about abandonment. We're talking about burning them with hot tongs. We're talking about beating them. I mean, clearly child abuse. And there's plenty of cases of children who didn't survive this. And I don't want to dismiss that. But I do find it really interesting when you look at um, when you look at some of the research that's gone into the incidents of childhood trauma and experiencers. I'm not saying that every experiencer has had childhood trauma. But I do think that it might help facilitate that sort of contact. And this is not an idea that's unique to me. You'll find this in the work of Kenneth Ring. You'll find it mentioned some in uh, Jeff Kripal's work. But there's this idea that that trauma might actually help induce dissociative states, which put you into contact with that other world. So I kind of wonder sometimes if these parents who are abusing their children, thinking that they're changelings, aren't responsible for <laughs> for for that sort of like interaction with the spirit world in their own way. And you know to that extent the number of the number of children who would return from fairyland and become basically their cultures seers mystics or shamans is is pretty striking. Like you know in western Europe a lot of children would return from fairyland and grow up to be priests or clergymen. So there's that aspect. But there's also this really tantalizing hint that you'll find in some of the Irish ethnographers like I'm thinking about Lady Gregory and uh, Lady Wilde, Oscar Wilde's mother, as it just so happens, um, who talk about these, you know, these fairy babies, these changelings, having these sick little wizened faces. They're all wrinkly and stuff. And, and there's one explicit example where uh, they say that it's sort of a, a human, an elderly human man who has died and come back as this changeling. So again, we see these lines between the fairy folklore and death and reincarnation really becoming blurred in a lot of ways. And to that extent, you know, there are also these stories of fairies 
experiencing sort of an inverse of emotions whenever someone comes or leaves our world. So, you know, they laugh at funerals and cry at births. So it's almost like this idea that there's a revolving door between these worlds uh, that, 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 that that's happening or that, that we're interacting with. Hmm. Uh, I got, I got something I want you to look at. I, yeah. um, you were talking about the wild hunt and it's interesting. I had a trail cam image come up to me from July 2018 in Tankenberg, which is in the Netherlands. And uh, this was actually captured. I don't know if he's got it up there yet or not. In the Netherlands. In the Netherlands. And uh, supposedly there was a temple to Tamfana Mm -hmm. that was destroyed by the Romans that rested on this hill when it was taken at. So anyway, from what I can gather... The person who placed the trail cam on the hill was attempting to capture an image of a strange ghost-like entity that people kept observing on the hill. The image that was captured made the rounds on the internet, but not, you know, uh, but many compared it to the legendary being of Dirk, you know, who would ride with the gods on the top of his wild board during the wild hunt. So... This is, I'm, 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 as you've been talking, I've been sitting here trying to figure out what the heck this could be if it's not what it looks like, right? Um, but, you know, I, I have a couple things spring to mind. I mean, that looks like a a lance or a spear in its hand, you know? Yeah. But the other interesting thing, too, is that, you know, we, we, we have tended to think over the years of the wild hunt as involving horses. And, and for the most part, they didn't. They involved as luck would have it, animals of the forest, which you right. know, a wild boar would certainly fit into that category as well. And then, I mean, is that a large head or is that a halo? You know, it's, it's interesting. Well, it's interesting. You know, there we normally think of halos being associated with divinity, and that's by and far uh, the, sort of what you'll see. But there are some older illuminated manuscripts that actually show revenants like the Draugr, and other sort of basically zombies uh, having sort of a halo around their head too. So that's <laughs> that's wild. That is, yeah, it kind of shocked like me. Hair to me. What's what that? that? It looks like hair to me. Very like very poofy hair. It's it's. I a, mean, that's just I that's amazing. I, yeah. I I don't know what the hell it is, but yeah, <clears throat> apparently the people in this village or in the area have been seeing this thing. Well, and, and that's a part of the world. You know, it's really interesting because. Um, it really becomes hard to to find wild hunt legends that aren't, you know, mostly Western European. Like, I think right. it kind of extends into the former Eastern Bloc states. But, you know, you don't really see it in North America or South America as much, um, or Australia or Africa. But um, the Netherlands definitely is a place where they have these legends as well. So that's that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I thought I'd bring it up since you talked about the wild hunt. I said, you know, I had that photo and that image come up, and no, I wanted to show you that. That's great. That's Because, honestly, Lon, I'll be completely honest with you. Usually, I'm really ambivalent about photos <laughs> and videos because, you know. Well, well I, I mean, am, too. I mean, it's, to it, it's, it's always like, you know, if, if it isn't an obvious hoax or something, it's like, okay, well, that's, that's neat. It's not going to prove anything at the end of the day, but it's neat. But that's mm. that's – I can't – figure out what the heck that could be yeah other than it, other than what it looks like yeah. so i'm kind of yeah that's wild pardon the pun wild <laughs> <laughs> oh god um 
Yeah, you know, uh, Vincent had a question about the sulfur smell in portal openings. Is there an association there somehow? Well, I've played with a lot of different ideas over the years, and one that I didn't include as much in Brimstone Deceit that I'm really regretful that I didn't was this idea that I've heard. I actually read it, I think, again in uh, in uh, West Virginia UFOs by Bob Teets. I picked up an old copy of that. And it's this idea that these things, whatever they are, assuming they're all from the same place, which I know is a controversial statement in and of itself, but let's assume for the time being that's the case, that these things can only exist in our reality for so long before they start to atrophy or decay. And, you know, that sort of brimstone smell, which, you know, people call it brimstone, people call it sulfur. Most of the time they're describing hydrogen sulfide. Sometimes they'll be describing other things, but that's generally speaking, if you sort of look at the the way people describe it, that seems to be what it is. That's a smell that you would find wherever there's organic material that's decomposing in the absence of oxygen. Mm -hmm. So, you know, (laughs) I think there's something to it, the idea that these things are coming in from somewhere else and that's part of the smell that's happening. Um, You know, one of the ideas that I played with in Brimstone to see was this idea, it was recent research at the time, and I haven't gone back to follow up on it because it would be really interesting to see what they did with it. But it was research at the time that showed that uh, carefully monitored amounts of hydrogen sulfide in lab mice could induce a state of suspended animation. And what I generally found was that you had those smells, like I I would say, if I was just trying to estimate, about half the smells that you find in paranormal encounters when there is a smell reported are hydrogen sulfide, and then there's like everything else, right? And what I found in that everything else category um, was that a lot of those smells be what are called trigeminal stimulants. And trigeminal stimulants are something that anybody who's curious can go investigate right now. Like open up some vinegar and take a big whiff <laughs> or even Windex, right? That, right. that feeling in your face is that's your largest nerve in your face is your trigeminal uh, nerve. And it's the same mechanism uh, by which smelling salts work. So you have the two, roughly speaking, the two types of smells that people notice either have the capacity to put you into an altered state, suspended animation, as the new research suggests, or to rouse you from an altered state of consciousness. And I think that's really interesting, this idea that depending on what part of the experience people are remembering, they're either remembering going into or coming out of this state, and that's the smell that they associate with it. It's just an idea I played with. I'm not even like I kind of like the the decaying entities idea more nowadays, honestly. You know, um, ever since you did um, uh, you, the the book you were talking about, um, I was thinking about this, and I, I wanted to ask you for a long time, and now I got the chance to ask. I just thought about it. I uh, there's one particular odor smell that I get when I'm doing RVing. And it always really? shows. It always shows up when I know there's an energy around me, and that's a cinnamon smell. And I've had other people tell me the same thing that this cinnamon smell kind of pops up all the time. You know. So, so first of all, you're in Brimstone Deceit. I think twice. I think there are two stories. There's a story about the the, the uh, ghost that passes through you and you smell honeysuckle. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe the Sykes. Ville monster was there a smell associated with that yeah there was a yeah. uh there was yeah. a fox urine smell that i yeah. i got one yeah from this thing so you're in it twice 
and I if if I had known this, you'd probably be in it three times. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I have I have a couple of different thoughts about that. You know, the first one is that uh, smells are not supposed to, you know, supposed to in terms of scientific terms appear in dreams and altered states of consciousness. Now, I've mm-hmm. talked to tons of people who say that they have smells in dreams and in altered states of consciousness. So that's the first thing. But that cinnamon smell, not only, I think cinnamon is one of those trigeminal stimulants. So that's kind of interesting. But also, you know, that cinnamon smell is something that I ran into in, you know, quite a few uh, UFO reports. I believe, is that right? I believe that that was one of the smells that... Um, Ed Walters experienced during the Gulf Breeze cases, if his initial, if his initial reaction was genuine, I think it was a sulfur smell. I'm oh, sorry, a cinnamon smell. Um, and then it was also one of the descriptors that Whitley Strieber used. Uh, Is that right? Yep. Um, he I said once, remember that, but that's one time. Yeah. One time he said cinnamon. And then later he said like cardboard and cheese. Um, which I don't know how you mix those up, but I think maybe yeah. it's two different two different moments or something along those lines. But yeah, that was cinnamon was definitely one of them. In fact, I think there is uh, like an alien abduction cologne that's come out, <laughs> and <laughs> they based it in part on on that cinnamon uh, that cinnamon bit that that Whitley mentioned. So there's some cinnamon in the cologne. Wow. I think somebody yeah. fact check me on that. <laughs> That's strange because oh, I've had it around my house a lot. I've even talked to you about it, Lon, the one time I sent you a message about it. And it, it was just like out of nowhere in the backyard. There was no possible way that cinnamon could be in the backyard at the time. Well, you know, what's interesting to me about the cinnamon smell is it's not like, you know, some of these smells that people experience at hauntings are clearly smells that have seeped into the wood over time and release under certain atmospheric conditions like this is not uncommon so like smoke is is something that you know cigar smoke or cigarette smoke Mm -hmm. is something that will do that even some you know perfumes and colognes will do that but i don't think i've ever i've ever heard of cinnamon doing that so that's interesting it might imply that there's something genuine going on there not to say that you aren't genuine but to imply that that's actually a part of of something anomalous yeah Yeah, i mean when i i'd go through the session and it came up many times and uh, it was part of my notes too that uh this cinnamon smell would pop up every once in a while. It was like, I, I really had no idea why I was doing that, but I associated with um, the uh, the energies that I was actually RVing or trying to trying to determine or something that showed up in the RV and that cinnamon, you know, you, you figure subconsciously how are you getting some type of smell coming to you, but you pick it up. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. Well, and what I discovered when I was writing the brimstone deceit was that, uh, man, it was it, that was just a rabbit hole. I could have just tumbled down endlessly because the science around exactly how we smell is pretty shaky. Um, I don't think you know. At least as of 2016, there wasn't really an agreed on model. Some people were even starting to bring quantum physics into the equation. Um, but also, like, there's an entire. Um, there's an entire corner of philosophy that just looks at the philosophy of smell. It's like, I would never have thought of that. So yeah, it's, it's, it's something that you just, you could, I find fascinating and it's something that you could probably just keep on researching for as long as you wanted to and still not have any answers. So smell is kind of weird in, in and of itself. That, that, book, that book is fascinating. I, 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 I have read it a couple times now because it's this, 
it's amazing. And it, you kind of, I connect with it because I, you know, when you get into an investigation, it's interesting. Some of the stuff you do pick up on, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I got a question from Nancy Malcolm. Are all beings fake ghosts ETs made of the same type of materials? So if we're talking about, if we're talking about, you know, physical materials, um, mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, I don't have the definitive answer on this, right? Like I don't, <laughs> I don't have the market cornered on this answer. Um, I'm inclined to think that there is some overlap there physically. Um, simply because a lot of these things tend to exhibit the same behaviors when interacting with objects, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. you've got, they all can pass through walls. They all seem to be able to float. Um, You know, there are some interesting correlations that you can draw between people who have made contact with uh, fairies and people who have made contact with aliens. I'll provide some specific examples. Um, If you look through the literature, oftentimes people will say that the you know, the alien flesh, the extraterrestrial flesh, especially in the case of the greys, is kind of soft and spongy. Um, this is certainly what Travis Walton said. And uh, if memory serves, again, I know he's coming up a lot, but I think Whitley Strieber said that as well. But there's some other, um, oh, I can't remember her name, but it's the West Virginia witness who supposedly snapped a grey alien's neck. Like she just sort of like squeezed her fist and it snapped the neck. I can't remember her name. Patsy Wingate, maybe? Yeah, I think that's um, the name. But uh, so you get this this squishy sort of, porous kind of uh i sort of uh impression from these stories which puts me in the mind of of uh you know a corpse honestly but um also puts me in the mindset of one of the things that was said about the fairy folk in robert kirk's the secret commonwealth of i can't remember the full title ever it's the secret commonwealth of satyrs fawns and elves or something like that. the secret commonwealth robert kirk um and he said that the 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 good folk, the fairy folk, had spongious bodies, which they uh, took food in through basically osmosis. And you know, I'll be darned uh, if you look at some of the, especially like that '90s UFO literature, like uh, the uh, the was it the Krill memo and stuff like that, like really old school conspiracy stuff. But mm-hmm. if you look into that, you'll see these stories about aliens taking in nutrients through their skin. I mean, that, that sort of even pops up in some of John Mack's work as well. So from a physical standpoint, I would say yes. Now, if we're talking like from a metaphysical standpoint, I'm probably more convinced of that myself nowadays. And it ties into that idea that like all these distinctions that we have between everything sort of blur once you get past this threshold, whatever death really represents. Um, and that's a very, you know, a very animus outlook you know the idea that everything kind of has a soul including mountains and rivers and stuff like that mm-hmm. but it's also a very sort of uh, monist outlook if you're ever familiar with the, the tenets of monism monism says that all these distinctions that we have especially the brain or the either the mind body distinctions are are illusions and just everything is one with everything and uh you know that's a line of thought that you find time and again in a lot of these alien abduction stories, when they have contacts of a spiritual nature, they'll be told things like, it's the me within the, uh, we are one with the one who is all, like these very sort of unific- unificatory, is that a word? <laughs> unifying, sort of unifying messages. It is now. About, yeah, it is now. I copyrighted it. Yeah, all these really now. unifying messages about sort of the oneness of everything. So I kind of think if, if you adopt that stance, then the answer would be yes as well. You know, you you got a word that you use a lot in the book, and it's, it's a word I haven't heard or read for such a long time. 
is a psychopomp. Oh man, I mean, Lon, this was like that was sort of the one of, one of the genesis points of this book was that psychopomp idea. Um, and I think you know, just as the connection between the dead and fairies lurks in the background of Passport to Magonia, I think that the psychopomp connection lurks in the background of another one of my favorite books on the paranormal, which is George P. Hansen's The Trickster in the Paranormal. Mm -hmm. Um, Because he goes at great lengths to describe certain trickster figures, but there's this thing lurking in the background where at least some of these trickster figures are also psychopomps. And that makes sense because tricksters are, you know, gods and goddesses of the threshold. And what's the biggest threshold that there is? It's, it's, um, it's death. So in case anybody's wondering, psychopomps are uh, beings that are charged with the transition from life into death. So we're talking about Hermes being a huge, probably the most famous psychopomp, uh, the jackal-headed god Anubis. Um, but a lot of different cultures have these things. You know, Australian uh, indige- indigenous Australians in certain parts of Australia uh, believed in Barnum Beer, who was this star that would sort of lead people to the afterlife. And even natural phenomena like the sun and the moon, you know, the sun is reborn every day and takes people to the underworld and comes back. Mm-hmm. Um, but also animals. And right. the animals that you see time and again throughout cultures. And, you know, we say some things are universal and they're kind of not universal. But when I say universal, I mean universal. The three most prominent universal psychopomps are dogs, horses, and birds. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of UFO dog stories. There are a lot, there are plenty of UFO horse stories, but man, the UFO bird stories. And then when you unpack the fact that cultures around the world thought that owls were like the most psychopompy of bird psychopomps. And you know my story on, on owls. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was just thinking about that. Um, at your wife's passing, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. And you know the work of Mike Cleland talking about owls, and that's just one right. of those moments when everything sort of clicked for me. I'm like, oh, is that what this is? So there's this through line throughout the book, just as you're right. Um, that uh, that a lot of the the things that we see in the UFO um, phenomenon do have a lot of these attributes of these psychopomps. And sometimes uh, in, in book two, I go into how some UFO occupants literally resemble psychopomps. I mean, you know, you know, Abrahamic religions don't really have psychopomps. That's kind of just God's domain, but mm-hmm. angels could serve in that capacity. And, mm-hmm. you know, the pe- number of people who have drawn comparisons between UFO occupants and angels is just, you know, legion. Um, so it's, it's, it's definitely a through line that, that's in there. And, you know, as luck would have it, there are a couple of stories of, of fairies taking people away at death uh, as well. So I don't I don't know if I've got it right. I don't know if this is objectively true, but there's something there. <laughs> I can I can confidently yeah, say there's something. I think there is. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting when I when I started mentioning uh, about all the owls I was seeing when she was sick and then when she then she passed away. And I talked to Mike Cleon about this as well. And uh, it's um, I, I got so much response from that because a lot of people experience that. Well, and, and I remembered it too. And, and it's yeah. interesting. I just saw somebody asking if crows could be psychopomps. I have a good friend who uh, 
whose grandfather passed away. And one of the memories that he has is of pulling up to the house and he walks by this old boat that his grandfather had in the yard and sitting on it is a crow. Now crows are not ravens, but you know, they're both corvids. So that sort of puts me in the mind, not only the fact that, you know, so many birds can be psychopomps, but crows and ravens were part of that ravens especially in the norse tradition because odin among his many duties was also a psychopomp Mm -hmm. but it was a it was a a crow sitting on a boat and that's another one of those psychopomp symbols you just cannot get away from is the boat and you know our earliest coffins were boats uh people are familiar with uh with with charon you know the greek uh ferryman who would take you across the river sticks rivers are a big afterlife border uh symbol as well so you have the boat as the symbol of death and you can find this in norse ship burials and viking funerals it just it's 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 a thing it's another one of those universals and what happens i love this what happens when a culture has map the entire world and knows that the afterlife in the other world isn't across the sea and it's not over this mountain range what where do we where do we put that afterlife where do we put the other world we put it in the stars i would argue Mm -hmm. not that it wasn't always there at some point but like that's kind of where we as sort of like if there's any secularists who think that there's something else to what's going on here on this planet we think about the stars and how do you get to the stars you get there in a spaceship boat you get there in the UFO. I mean, the UFO as a symbol is so dependent upon transportation. And it's these motifs of transportation that really define a lot of the psychopomp lore. Birds can reach places that we can't. Horses can go places we can't. The only outlier in those three big psychopomps is dogs. But dogs, you know, are companions and they, they can lead you places. So I just think that's so interesting that like so much of the UFO mythos is obsessed with transportation. And that's exactly what this afterlife transition seems to be. Absolutely. So, so I, I kind of wonder if, again, I'm not saying that this is all in our minds, but I kind of wonder in some sort of collective unconscious Jungian way, like there isn't something that we has been with us for a long time. And as we have grown more technologically obsessed and more secular, we haven't made it into something that is a, is a flying saucer. And it's always yeah. been there. It's the same as it's always been, but this is just the way that we see it now. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting to me about that is that, um, you know, you talked about the Vikings and the uh, their use of the uh, the the ship burials and, you know, and then, of course, the Egyptians and Mm -hmm. the using. Yep. Yeah. uh, You know, to go across the star, to go across the heavens and, you know, that when the pharaoh dies, he go, you know, he travels with the sun across each day and. And each morning he wake, he rises with the sun with it on his ship, and 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 the the sun is an identified flying object. I mean, it's a it's yeah. a glowing circle in the sky. Absolutely. And some of these Egyptian underworlds were stellar underworlds, and uh, I mean, yeah, it's it's just. And here's the thing that I found so fascinating about this lawn is that it kind of locked a lot of things in for me. And I don't know if it's again, I don't know if it's true, but it works for me, right? So mm-hmm. like. When I think about dogs as psychopomps and I think about Anubis and then I think about dogmen, I'm like, okay, this kind of makes some sense. And then I hear these stories, which I'm sure you've heard too, of like people who see a UFO turn into a bird or somebody sees a UFO and somebody else sees a bird. And they're like, that's not a bird, it's a UFO. No, that's not a UFO, that's a bird. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if 
if birds are psychopomps, then it kind of makes perfect sense. And this isn't even getting into, this isn't even going down the rabbit hole that's one of my favorite rabbit holes, which is the idea that, sounds crazy, but the idea that UFOs, especially those of the sort of orb of light variety, are literal souls, you know. And so the bird soul was another one of those universals that you'll find everywhere. The idea that the soul, you know, exits the body in the shape or form of a bird. So it's just, it's just, it keeps on... It was a lot more rewarding to explore these things than I thought it was. And again, that's what that's what kind of scares me is because I find it so attractive. So try to keep it at arm's length. And well, do you know, think that maybe oh sorry. Go ahead. Do you think that maybe as a person gets closer to death or if a loved one gets closer to death, they unknowingly trigger these things? I th I mean I would think so. I have a couple of stories in the book about uh, deathbed visitations from fairies. Um, the number of people who have had people with them while they're on their deathbed see anomalous lights in the room is pretty striking. Um, some of them really prominent uh, people who were contacted by aliens. I believe it was, I can't remember the name of the exact abduction, but Elaine Thomas was one of the witnesses. And one of them was getting ready to die. And the nurse saw lights in the room. And she said, oh, no, that's just the UFO, you know, UFO pilots coming to take me. Howard Minger's son, the famous contactee Howard Minger, um, there were lights that were observed all around his deathbed. And he told his parents, those are just the people from Orion coming to get me. Um, and, you know, so, so, and, and, and then you have this other thread that you can pull on of, uh, of UFOs as kind of being death omens. I mean, Ted Phillips, famous, famous, um, you know, person who claimed to have inherited his psychic abilities from contact with space people, um, was his his home was sort of bombarded with UFO sightings, both reported by him and reported by his neighbors just before his death as well. And the list just goes on from there. Hmm. You know, um, I find it fascinating. I, I'm I'm really into Egyptian history, but um, just like the Aten and the sudden change to the Aten uh, by uh, Amenhotep the Fourth or Akhenaten, or however you want to call him. Uh, I believe there's an extraterrestrial aspect to that, a possible sighting of a uh, of a craft that initiated that in the beginning. Now, of course, there's no evidence of that. Right. But, you know, you, you 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 know, so many interpretations of that 18th dynasty in particular. But the sudden change of religion has really fascinated me from the very beginning. And uh, I, I think it's something that may have happened. And I wrote about it in my, a bit about it in my UFO, uh, my uh, alien disclosure book, where I believe that during Amenhotep III's reign, that something occurred uh, where possibly the royal family and others had seen this craft. Yeah, I mean, if you look back through a lot of those texts, it sounds like that. I mean, there was an example that springs to mind from uh, Chris Albeck's and Jacques Vallée's Wonders in the Sky, where they're talking about the uh, invading Nubian army being just decimated by a star that descended. So, you know, where I am currently is I'm not sure if it's extraterrestrials. I'm not sure if it's something, you know, for lack of a better term, more spiritual. But mm -hmm. I think a lot of the UFO observation i think that i think that the academics kind of have it right like i think that the proper way to view a lot of this stuff is is through the context of religious experience even mm -hmm. if it isn't religious even if it is uh you know flesh and blood extraterrestrials i still think that viewing it through that sort of religious um 
sociological lens is 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 an important way to look at it because I think that there's been some sort of interplay between our beliefs and what we've been seeing in the sky for a long time. Oh, I think yeah. that I think that you know a lot of the things that we see today, you know, seven thousand years ago would have been thought of in that in that context. You know, it's it's hard to to say or to to not to not say that there hasn't been some type of intervention somewhere down the line. Uh, yeah, because you know it. it you know, I, I was always a, a very strong believer in uh, um, I don't know. You know, the, the actual you know, oh gee, evolution. Yeah, and you know, but. As you look at it, and I'm not saying it's intelligent design or anything to that degree, but I do believe there was intervention at some point. Yeah, and, and you know, if, if you, you know, this is sort of the, oh, we're almost running out of time. Um, <laughs> this is sort of a, a line that I have to walk a lot because I am a practicing Christian, but at the same time, mm-hmm. I believe a lot of these stories. So this book is, I've had people come to me and say this book doesn't read like it's written from a Christian perspective, but... Um, I think that it definitely is written from sort of a, a a spiritual or paranormal sort of perspective. And I, I think about the way that people like to set up computer programs now to sort of be self-sustaining in a lot of ways to learn and to adapt and whatnot. And that to me sounds very much like what the evolutionary process has been. Mm -hmm. And as far as like more direct intervention, I mean, we don't necessarily need to go down the ancient aliens route to to see that sort of interaction coming from other sources. I mean, Diana Walsh Basulka's American Cosmic, I think, illustrated that really well, that some of the people who are really highly placed in terms of our technological circles claim to be getting information from these external sources. And, you know, Carrie Mullis, who invented the PCR technique with which we've always become familiar in the past couple of years, but also revolutionized uh, DNA work in the laboratory, um, completely uh, contributes that development to his use of LSD and the mm. revelations that he supposedly got under the, you know, under the, under that influence Nobel prize winner for that discovery. Um, so there does seem to be some sort of flow of information between here and somewhere else. And uh, you know, in addition to just all the little miracles that we experience day to day in our lives. You know, it's interesting, you know, I'm, I'm a child of the seventies. And I went to high school in the early 70s. And the whole ancient astronaut theory from the book, uh, I had had science teachers who hit us hard on that, who took it as fact. That's interesting. (laughs) I mean, the 70s, I guess, right? Yeah, Yeah. early 70s. Uh, And, but it's interesting as well, how many people who I know who were taught that in school? I mean, we had a very progressive science mm-hmm. teacher who did this. He was a Brit and uh, have kind of changed our thoughts on that. Not that we don't believe it, but there's been a lot of changes in interpretations since then. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, a lot of discoveries. And I, I think part of the problem that we have with a lot of that older stuff is that we don't necessarily perceive what older cultures might have been able to accomplish because we just haven't chosen that path. A good example right. that I like to think of is, uh, are these, you know, Egyptian sculptures made of, I believe it's diorite, which, you know, couldn't be chiseled at the same, uh, 
meticulous level that they were able to, even with modern tools. But I think if if we had gone down the technological route of treating stone like plastic, we might have been able to accomplish that. Uh, but instead, but instead, we you know are all about silicon, I guess nowadays. <laughs> Well, well, Josh, look, it's great having you on tonight. Uh, tell folks how they can get in contact with you and what you got coming up. I can be reached at joshuacutchin.com, J-O-S-H-U-A-C-U-T-C-H-I-N.com. Uh, there, are, there are links there to contact me. Uh, I am selling copies of uh, An Ecology of Souls uh, directly to folks. Um, if you buy them for me, I sell. If you buy them for me together, I sell them at a discount. Amazon doesn't let you do that for whatever reason. But if you buy volume one and two from me together, uh, I can offer them that way. Um, also, you know, I made an allusion to the fact that all the references are in a third book. That third book is completely optional, and by completely optional, I mean that the PDF of it is on my website for people. It, to it's great. It's a great <laughs> reference. Thanks, man. I, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I suggest anybody, everybody, download that because. Uh, it is a great reference. I think there are four thousand endnotes in the book. But, is that right? But yeah, but but you know, on top of that, um, I have three appendices uh, talking about the dead scene and abductions and right. and the UFOs around cemeteries as well. So uh, anybody wants a copy, reach out to me, and we'll we'll work it out with shipping and handling. Well, Josh, look, anything comes up, you want to come on and talk about anything, projects or whatever. You know, don't be a stranger. Contact me, and we'll get you on. Well, I appreciate it, Lon. We should do this. Like I said, we should do this when there's not a new book, <laughs> and we yeah. can just yeah, we can that's just true. Talk ideas back and forth, and Bernadette. Yeah, because so you and I could talk forever on a lot of different things. Too. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so yeah, I, I really just appreciate all of y'all on what you do. So keep up the good work. Well, you take care, and I'll talk to you soon. All right, thanks, y'all. Mm-hmm. Bye. Now, uh, if you have a site or encounter report that you'd like to be considered for uh, the personal report show. Or even on the Fams of Monsters website, feel free to email me at lawnstrictorfamsandmonsters.com. Um, I want to again thank Joshua Cutchin for joining me this evening. It was great catching up with him. And, and thanks to each and all of you for watching and chatting. Uh, your support is what makes this possible, and that includes liking, subscribing, sharing, and also making comments. Now, next Friday, we are presenting another roundtable discussion. This time, the subject is going to be obscure cryptids. So that be, should be an interesting, uh, interesting discussion. We haven't got all, all the guests lined up yet, but we're getting there. Uh, there will not be a presentation on Wednesday because, quite frankly, I've got a show I'm doing somewhere else. So, But next Friday, uh, join us for that. That should be a great show. So until next week, stay healthy and have a safe, enjoyable weekend. Good night. 